0: Clubhouse. This is Paul Daly, here with my wife, Caroline. Hi, guys. And today, we're here to discuss the seventh episode of Amazon's first season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This one is called, Put That on Your Plate.
1: (laughs) That's upsetting when you say that. Uh, I'm apologizing in advance, y'all, because this is pollen season round here, and we are full of pollen. So, if you hear a lot of voice clearing and <clears throat> awkwardness, we apologize in advance. It is like a yellow haze in our neck of the woods. So, <laughs> apologies all round. Let's get right to Joel, an unlikely start character for us. He's not our favorite.
0: No, and he hasn't really been showing up on the, a lot in the last few episodes.
1: No not much and you know what this one really was a um this is this is the second time we've watched this episode and I felt very surprised at little parts that I didn't catch on the first go round both on this one and number eight I, I guess because we sort of binge watched it the first time you know how you get a little a little murky at points you know you you had to go get some snack or go to the bathroom or something you might have missed little bits and I kind of feel like I didn't have a good grasp on Joel's Part in this episode until our rewatch. So we start off with this like young Joel flashback to his bar mitzvah and Moish is like super jazzed at basically the show that they put on.
0: Did this scene cast a different uh, perception of Moish for you than you might have had before? Because it did for me.
1: It definitely did for me in that the portion of having to take Joel's gifts, like the money that he received. Right. We that knew was that the Moish part.
0: was cheap, at least by Abe's standards.
1: Well, and not only that, but like that he was sort of a blowhard that he, you know, at the dinner, he had to go on about the 13 Jews and like all that business, you know, yeah. like I felt like, you know, it was very clear to us that he was all about being a braggart basically and, and wanting to repeat anything that he thought would impress someone. But I didn't really... I felt like it was stepping over a different line. So if you guys are not remembering, basically, he tells Joel that it was so important for them to put on this gigantic production for the bar mitzvah while they could have had it at a free bowling alley locally um, that was like a friend or family that everyone would have known it was free. And so it was very important that they knew that it cost a lot of money. And in order to pay for the entire party, he was going to have to confiscate all of Joel's money, which, you know, bar mitzvah is a very big deal. And I want to say that in my own brain, at least, it's like the first seed money for kids in the Jewish faith. So it's like, you know, if you think about like for us, like maybe we have like first communion or confirmation or whatever, and you kind of get that little like savings bonds and stuff like that that come. Sure. If all that stuff was taken away. I mean, I just think it was a really crappy thing to do and obviously it showed us the role model that Joel has had
0: I mean the, the theme of Moish's whole speech seemed to me to be be a phony that's the way to that's the way to get ahead
1: well and even it's, I it's, would it's say, like a
0: perverted form of fake it till you make it I would say right?
1: exactly that I would say it's 100 percent that is what the current day you know, lingo is fake it till you make it. Basically, you know, we joke around when we say, pretend like you've been here before. Like basically, like if you just blend in as much as you can, then, you know, people will think you belong. And so and eventually you will because you will have been there for a while. So it's just about getting your foot in the door. But I feel like this whole idea of how overt he was about faking it. Like, I feel like it's one thing to sort of live your life where you're sort of like, especially to your kids, if you sort of make things look better than they really are. That's one thing. But to be so overt as to be like, be fake. It's very important that you just fake your whole existence. It's like, wow. I mean, very few people say that.
0: And then the part where you got to steal from your kid. Because those Uh, people gave those gifts on kind of good faith that Moish... Had paid for this out of his own pocket and that this money was going to Joel.
1: Well, and the main thing, too, is that, like I said, like, you know, I don't I we could do a little Google and figure out like what the average haul is for bar mitzvah. But it is a pretty sizable haul from what I understand. And so it's like if only five or six years later, maybe not that much more because he was 13. So say he was like, what, 20 or 21 when he got married and they were dead broke. Actually, money like that, that would have been sitting in like a savings account actually would have been a little bit of chunk of money. Wouldn't have been like enough to buy a house or something like that, but it would have been a little bit of something, you know? Right. So to know that Moish had basically ca- like made him broke as a little guy, you know, moving forward, it kind of like, it like hit you in the belly. Like, oh my God, he created a broke adult Joel at 21.
0: One that was more obsessed with the idea of not appearing broke right then actually just you know well, And
1: what's a little guy gonna do though paul seriously what's a little guy gonna do i mean his dad needed the money to do that and so your it was dad's like, your, your template yeah i mean oh my god so so he was set up to be in a bad position starting off in the world there and it was all about you know house of cards kind of thing so speaking of homes old joel is no longer living with miss penny pan
0: very amusing scene with uh, Shirley here because, I mean, I, I asked Caroline, did he move out when he was 10? Because he still <laughs> had the, the army guys on the on the windowsill and lots of stuff. That, like the
1: baseball bat in the corner. Know, as you
0: kind of age thing. out of certain things, a lot of times they, they go away out of your room. You know, just on the off chance that a girl should ever see it, you don't need them to see like, you know, your Lego creations or anything like that.
1: That's interesting because I was in a boy's room when we were in high school. and He did have all those Legos out. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was so weird. I was like, okay, this is a little much. I mean, for girls, we do like, you know, redecorate as we get older. I mean, I can definitely remember when everybody got rid of like dollhouses and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, like swatch watches were hung on the wall. And, you know, like I got new bedspread. And, like I hung a swing in my room, like not like a sexy swing, but like a cool one of those, like you get at uh, Pier 1 kind of wicker <laughs> swings, you know. Like, I, yeah, we did like move now did you as a teen boy since this was a boys room did you also have that like redecorating moment as you got a little bit older
0: not exactly it's just um well
1: you got a hand-me-down bed didn't you that really went from like a twin king little guy bed to like a big old water bed right for a
0: long time yeah i had a king-size water bed
1: how insane is that
0: (laughs) (laughs) right well you know after i got the van and moved it out there
1: seriously Just for uh, just for a notice, I never even saw that waterbed.
0: Just the stuff of legends, huh? Just
1: the stuff of legends, and I dated this man, boy, boy, man, man, child at that point in time. So Shirley comes singing a little tune for wake him up in the morning. Tells him to go ride his bike because it's a beautiful day outside. All but the stuff she says, Make sure she like sure wears a hat. Underwear and all that. Yeah, underwear. This. I can't believe you said that. So disgusting. So anyway, (laughs) I would never say that. I would never say that. And I would not say that to my kid, a father of two kids. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. So anyway, (laughs) he's like, I got to go to work. I'm not going for a bike ride. And she's worried he's has to wear a hat because he gets like a heat stroke and shit. Oh, Polly, it's too much. And then she leaves singing like a nursery rhyme. She's, something's, something's, (laughs) a screw has come (laughs) loose in in Shirley's brain. Oh my God. It's such a scene, such a scene. Speaking of his room, he still has all those um, pictures that he had like taped up on his headboard. And, again, back to Moishe's speech about, like, they had said that, you know, the one guy was a was a cousin who had, like, been a war hero. And he's like, oh, I can, you know, I'm so excited to put this up on my headboard. It's totally my cousin. He's like, yeah, no, it was like our paper boy. We barely knew him. Good night, Irene. And it was still taped up, even though he knew that. And he knew that to be a lie and everything. It was still taped up, not unlike those Dion quintuplets in Midge's room.
0: Makes you kind of doubt the veracity of Moish's 13 saved Jews. I think
1: that's the point. I mean, I think that's why Abe is so like frustrated by that story because he's like, yeah, he basically brought him over here as like indentured servants, like that they work in the factory and they're not, like, as slaves, basically, is what he was was sort of intimating. And it was like, oh, my God. Joel has decided that he, I think, is going to be more of a stand-up guy than perhaps Moish and Shirley actually raised him to be. And he creates, basically, a prehistoric spreadsheet. So he's going to take it to Abe, and he's going to explain this finances. So in order to be financially stable for Midge and the kids and be able to, I guess, have his own life, he's got to make some moves at work.
0: Yeah, I mean, they there's a boardroom scene, and I don't know if you noticed, but he is by far the youngest guy in there.
1: Very much you so, know? right.
0: Not that that should keep you from talking, but that can keep you from being taken seriously in that kind of setting. So his idea had to be not just good, but really good, you know? And he did. He it was had, innovative. He had a, a forward-thinking idea of of buying out a smaller company and creating their own supply chain so they could make something without depending on other suppliers.
1: This was smart. It was smart. It was innovative. Like we said, you know, definitely forward thinking. So, I mean, it was a good idea and and it would bring him a pay raise. However, it would also bring a lot of travel and having to ultimately live out on the West Coast.
0: So when he comes to Abe and he has this, these big dreams about how he's going to give Midge and the kids this lifestyle that they deserve, but he's not going to have anything left for himself. Did you think in your mind, yeah, this is a done deal. This guy's really going to, He's so strong on follow through. I have no doubt that he's going to just do all the stuff he says.
1: I felt exactly how Abe felt, which, you know, Joel said, you should be happy. And he's like, "Okay, I'll be happy. It it was unrealistic. And, you know, as much as he was trying to act selfless with his, you know, I'm going to give all the money to Midge and the kids and Abe saying, like, you don't have any you don't have anywhere to live. You don't have any money for yourself. You have no way to do this. It's like that didn't expose a problem in Joel's eyes. It was just like, uh, but this is what I want. Like I want to do it was still so immature, you know, I will I want to give them all my money. And so therefore this will work out. And Abe's like, no, I mean, you dork have to live somewhere and have food and, you know, have clothes to wear and transportation. And stuff. So like you're not making sense. And Joel still didn't even like absorb that. He was just like, well, this is this is what I want the plan to be. So therefore, just right. be happy with it. Yeah, Abe just gives him that like, "Boy, are you immature?" Face, you know.
0: He didn't want to deal with him, but once he got into it, he he changed a little bit and was, and he even reached out and was like, "Joel, you know, he, yeah. he 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 knew that he was setting he was himself like
1: grasping, up. you know, yeah. just grasping and especially the part about like, you know, if you live away and travel all the time in order to create this spreadsheet of yours then the children will never see you and they'll never know you and you won't have any time with them. And, you know, him being like, oh, they'll be better off without me. Well, you know, again, like you're acting selfless on one hand and on the other hand, it's like they deserve to have two parents. Joel, like stop what you're saying. You know, you're acting selfless, but at the same time, it's actually coming off selfish, Mm -hmm. you know, or you're not thinking of others. I think that this is a, a a huge moment that reflects this overall theme of like appearances versus reality. So, you know, we have that, a huge uh, example throughout with Moish and his whole story and everything going on with Joel, but even down to this spreadsheet, it's like, yeah, appearance, it would appear you are taking care of your of the kids and Midge, but the reality is, is that this isn't gonna happen the way that you think it is. And And that's just like the theme throughout this entire episode. And I would even say probably seven and eight it's like appearances versus reality.
0: Yeah, these two episodes, I mean, number 6 and to an extent number 5 had I would call an average number of events that happened in those episodes. These two episodes seem like they might have they might have been able to go actually to episodes 9 and 10. You know, they had so much story and they just took the best parts, crammed them into two episodes and finished the series or fit the season, that is.
1: Yeah. And I felt like after this conversation with Joel, Abe, you know, I, the, he, he tells Rose he's going to bring home a colleague for dinner. And it's, uh, you know, they assume that it's Professor Glickman who's been this professor, I guess, that he's brought home as this elderly man. We sort of get the idea like maybe Abe took him under his wing to, you know, give him a good meal every once in a while with a family. This scene was so well done with, you know, all this concern for Professor Glickman's food needs of these soft foods and they can't have any lumps and everything. And they they're just so worried about that, that when Abe walks in and he has this young man with him, even you and I thought, oh, my God, he's setting her up like he understands that Joel is now moving on. And this is all a setup.
0: I thought it was, too. I mean, the guy was uh, I could tell I don't have a great, you know, eye for what makes a guy attractive, but this guy seemed to fit into the generalities, you know, symmetrical, about six (laughs) feet high, you know, that kind of stuff.
1: I think that it's that he's a young professional single man and that's about it. That's all that it has to be. And so, you know, it really seemed like, okay, this is a setup. So, What brought Abe to this moment besides just Joel coming with this spreadsheet? Well, it was definitely having this birthday party prep eavesdropping situation that was going on. With Dodie. With Dodie. That was so funny. So we had Midge and Dodie, aka Imogene, creating the uh, loot bags, which apparently were a brand new concept at this time. cutting
0: edge party technology. Uh, Abe
1: acted like he'd never heard of anything like that before. He overheard that basically everything was a train wreck when it came to what was going on with Joel and Midge's living situation amongst the friends so all the adults were told all different stories
0: we we actually got to see firsthand you know early on like in the elevator Mm -hmm. uh when they were going down the elevator with a neighbor with uh with rose how she came up with some wild story about joel needing to be away and blah 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 and then
1: there was and there had been another episode a little just flash where they say they're doing renovations At uh, Miriam's house and and they said, oh, I can't wait to see all the renovations and stuff. And that's why they're not living there. So, yeah, there had been a ton of cover stories that we had been let in on.
0: Abe, he gives us an ambiguous face there and when he's overhearing it. Like you could see it both ways. Like, is he saying, is he thinking to himself, man, uh, Joel is finally re-available. Maybe we can hook this thing back up again. Or it turns out he's thinking something more like it's time to move on from this loser.
1: Yeah. And I think that it's time to, like he says, time to just like settle into an actual life here and not be in this like, is Joel traveling? Are you married? Are you renovating? Like all these stories. Again, appearances versus reality. You've put up fronts to all these people all along, all along the way. And it's time to like shut that shit down. And so the whole Blumenthal dinner. Oh my god! I I mean, first of all, it was hysterical when they're sitting there saying, you know, that dad is a pimp and all this stuff. But then, but then when he's like, "Well, it's wonderful." Um, he's like, "Thursday nights is soft food night here in the Wiseman house. The food that they serve is like peaches and mashed potatoes. It sounds like horrific." But again, was made for this elderly guest they were expecting. Were you shocked when it turned out that David Blumenthal was a divorce lawyer?
0: Yeah, it was super forward of Abe. I mean, because everything that he had said up to this point was, you know, get back together with your husband. You know, so to make this move, especially without talking to Rose first, is a very big deal. It ends up kind of hurting his relationship with Rose
1: well, oh, not kind of I think a lot uh, we it. didn't
0: actually see them reconcile uh yet so. right
1: i I think that you know again, appearances versus reality, like Abe knew so much more than he had led on with Rose. Between listening to, you know, conversations with Midge and Imogene, plus, you know, the fact that he like actually went to B. Altman and saw that she worked there and like absorbed that fact. And, you know, he like had been collecting facts along the way. And of course, Midge had shared with him that Joel had indeed come back and asked to come back and she had said no. So he had all these chunks of information that rose knew nothing rose thought we're just sitting here waiting for joel to show back up when he comes to his senses we're gonna fix it all so to have a divorce lawyer at dinner i mean when rose goes he's she's like i need to i need to speak to you in the other room and she takes like miriam and and she turns back to david and she's like don't you get any papers out of your briefcase (laughs) that was like oh my god i mean it is Oh, the writing is so well done. She had some great. So sharp.
0: Emily Gilmore type.
1: Oh, uh, terrific.
0: Like uh, nuances in in her performance there.
1: Absolutely terrific. I I loved every second of it.
0: This show, however, is not about Joel. Thank God we wouldn't watch it. (laughs) This show is about the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, who is hard at work.
1: She has been killing it in the gaslight. She has finally come up with a series of jokes and little bits that she finally has her tight 10.
0: Pretty sure that every one of those clips in that montage where she is improving her jokes, Mm -hmm. it was a different outfit. Yes. Even when it was different jokes that she was working on. Yes. So I think they were trying to tell us. This is weeks of effort.
1: Well, because we know that these final two episodes are basically Christmas time, and we know that this entire story started back in September or maybe early October, we know that like we have to make it through all the way through... like. more more weeks you know more no november whatnot so i felt like um again even her act did such a good job of highlighting the the appearance versus reality making all the jokes about the the parents you know scratch scratch scratching the twin beds pulling them apart oh my god i can't even i cannot even, that's what they really did. I mean, I knew there was like the twin bed thing because of, I've seen that on like Lucy and Ricky. I'm like, I love Lucy. But the idea of like pushing two twin beds, like that just seems like an awesome way to fall in the crack. <laughs> Doesn't <laughs> it?
0: My grandparents had, Had beds like that.
1: I hope you never heard scritch scratching.
0: No, I didn't. And they had like a dresser in between them. So it would have been like kind of a lot of effort to to do it.
1: I'm really asking you a a serious actual question. Yes. Back in this time, I understand sleeping in twin beds. Okay, I can wrap my brain around that for appearances. Seriously, they pushed the twin beds together? This is how they actually had intimate moments? This is what they did? Yeah, I think so. Oh, my God. I think that I have had to try to push twin beds together. And I'm telling you, this is a freaking mess. How did they manage to do this? You
0: at least need to make it with, you know, the, the king or the queen or whatever that adds up to be. size It's sheet. a king,
1: right? You're supposed to put, yeah. So you would take both twin beds and you put like a king. Yeah. Like bottom sheet. Yeah, but then who are they, What kind of planning? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, my God, could, first things first, everyone bring out the, what are those arm things? Remember those arm straps to like move furniture? Yeah, the
0: forearm forklift.
1: Yeah, everybody's got to go get the forearm forklifts to move the twin beds over. Now we got to go to the linen closet and get like different sheets. And then afterwards, we're going to swap the sheets back to the twin sheets and forklift them back.
0: Now, ah! see, if you were really smart, you'd, you'd preload the bed. On top of like those those coaster things. That, oh,
1: my God. Yeah, right. with the felt bottoms. Yeah. That's smart. Now yeah, you're thinking. See? You know what? <gasps> I just thought of a freakier idea. Haven't you seen twin beds? I've definitely seen this in New England where they actually have the little rollers mm-hmm. on the- Ooh, Paul. It's very old school. Wait. Was this to push the beds together? Was this to push the beds together, Paul? They had wheels on the beds and I never put it together in my brain. Mm-hmm. <gasps>
0: I think you found the secret to some sort of, you know, lost mystery of time.
1: You well, know? like furniture things that I've noticed in the past and I never once thought about why. Like, I know that in the 1950s, definitely the furniture in my grandparents' house, they definitely had wheels even on the dressers. There was little wheels, which means they could move that dresser between your grandparents' twin beds and it wasn't any big deal. <gasps> oh, my God. I feel like I've seen the whole world nude.
0: The truth is out I'm there. really
1: upset by this whole thing. Well, I thought that her whole bit about that was really funny. Um, you know, her and Susie clearly have had, you know, this journey together. And they're so excited. I mean, Susie, when she's like, what's this water coming down my face? She's like, you're crying <laughs> because it's like actually happening.
0: That was a real humanizing scene for old Suze. Suze. But Suze isn't overly emotional. The point of lunch today... Is that it's time to move on from the gaslight? The gaslight is great for warming up, but you know no one serious stays at the gaslight. So it's time to leave the nest.
1: Yeah, and luckily Susie has you know the connection with Harry, and she connects with him and and gets him to allow her that to at least come and meet up with this new character, Sophie Lennon, who's played by Jane Lynch. If you guys remember her from Glee, and um, I think she was in that new one. What was it? Something like an angel.
0: Yeah, that didn't last long. Didn't she, last she hosts long. that that Hollywood game show yes. or whatever it is. Yeah,
1: so if you guys don't remember her, she plays Sophie Lennon. And Sophie Lennon is essentially this, like, persona um, that the actual Sophie plays, but it's, like, this concept of this Sophie Lennon that's, like, from Queens, and she's, like, this big, fat sort of, like um, – housekeeper type woman. I guess she's like always wearing like the, she always has the feather duster in her hand and a a big apron and all this kind of stuff. And she is the consummate female comedian.
0: She reminds me, even though you say female, she reminds me a lot of like Larry the Cable Guy in terms of like having a persona, having a catchphrase. Yes,
1: yes, exactly. Like uh, Jeff Foxworthy. All those guys, you're exactly right. And what do you think is the idea of having a persona versus just being yourself?
0: Well, it's a way to protect yourself. Okay. You know, it's it's like you get to, you still get to have your own experiences, but then you get to shape them through this lens and turn them into material. But if, but you can switch stuff around and it's not like you're betraying how things actually happen. You're not like telling lies. You're making an act right. for your persona. You can have so. like a
1: fake family and like a fake place you live and all that kind of you stuff. You can
0: change the names, change mm-hmm. the relationships, change the ages, all that kind of stuff. You can well,
1: just Well, you can move be a single person and, and be talking about your husband and all that kind of stuff, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that it makes sense to me. So again, when you said the catchphrase, the name of this episode.
0: It's, <laughs> I, I guess since she comes from that depression era, you know that something about eating is probably like a pretty big deal, right? So, you can put that on your plate or whatever it is. Put that on your plate. That's like her every time she says it. That's it's her get it done, get her done. It a- is after after just
1: not even great jokes. I think that to me, it's like a it's like a derivation of put that in your pipe and smoke it. Mm. Like it, that's what it seems like. Put that on your plate. It like seems like it's like the same thing. Like I don't know. I, I'm not. It's like basically you're asking the person to like consume that, like take that in you know that kind of thing.
0: It sounds like the punchline for a joke that went really well.
1: <laughs> right. You know,
0: and then she then just you, kept saying. It. Yeah, and then you could just morph it into different things and all of a sudden it just was a catch-all.
1: So when you mentioned that depre- the depression era, um I, it caught me like by surprise when we were talking about Susie really having enjoyed Sophie Lennon's show and she said she she really got us through the depression. And Miriam's like, how old are you? Because if you remember, Joel's uh, flashback was 1943 when he was like a kid and was would have been like 13 and wouldn't have seen Sophie Lennon or anything at that point. He was a little, little kid, you know? Mm-hmm. And so then it's like, how old would you have to be to have the money? How much older are you than Miriam? stuff that you would have been watching a comedian back further back like another like 10 10- years? 15 years.
0: Let's see. If Joel was bar mitzvah age in 43.
1: He would have been born in 30. But Suze would have, have been memories. like 20 years older. And an adult. 10 years,
0: Min. Well, she was on the radio.
1: Like, I feel like you would have had to be, you would have had to be old enough. Like I said, how much older is she? So Mitch just totally asked like, how old are you? She's like, I'm not telling you. I mean, it really did make me wonder like, how old is she? I don't know. Do you think she's supposed to be like in her 40s?
0: Um. Well, yeah, sure. Um,
1: Which would put her a whole, you know, 20 years older than, than Midge and Joel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she she comes from a place of having a lot of life experience and not a lot of it very good. You know?
1: Yes, for sure.
0: She's much more jaded than someone in their 20s.
1: For sure. So the Sophie Lennon show went great, and Midge loved it. She gets a chance to meet Sophie backstage. And Harry actually, like, sets this up that, like, you know, hey, she's going to, you know, what do you think about her opening for you? And Sophie does something quite surprising, I thought.
0: She invites Midge over one day to her house.
1: Was well, That was kind of a surprise, right?
0: A totally unnecessary, right? I thought uh, so
1: because this was like such a business deal. I totally didn't think she would like pay that much attention to me.
0: She used the word acolytes. She likes to get to know her acolytes. So it's she, kind of a scene. So she had kind of anticipated that this woman, comedian, would appreciate, you know, kind of being taken under her wing. That's the whole point of going out of your way to, to open for her in the first place, she assumes, right?
1: Absolutely. What a shocking display at Sophie Lennon's house.
0: Super rich. I mean, she is rich enough so that what we had previously thought of with the Mazels and the Weissmans as being upper class. She's oh, way higher she's than that. So
1: much higher than that. I mean, so she's much like higher than Daddy that.
0: Daddy Warbucks type level. Oh
1: my gosh! When they when Mitch goes in and she, they're like putting her coat away, and they open the door, and there's just like a room of servants standing there. It was like, oh my god, that was so crazy, so crazy, and Dawes and all that stuff. Wow. And then
0: she's dressed like she could have worn that to meet royalty or a head of state or something. You know when she comes down the stairs and that...
1: Oh, Sophie. Oh, my God, that, yes. And her that outfit... That gown, I would call it. It. Was, it definitely was a gown. And it was, like you said, like sort of like international looking. Because that it had sort of like this sash this effect.
0: asymmetrical... Yeah. I mean, that's the kind
1: of thing you wear when you are meeting like a head of state. Like you would have like a brooch and all this... Uh, the asym- the asymmetry and the different materials definitely was like very fashion forward. So, I I mean, she was so... Interesting. The whole thing where she was like, I didn't sleep well. Is the light caustic in the blue room? Because, you know, I don't, I don't like it when the light is caustic.
0: So we have to wait for Dawes to go. He doesn't run. He just walks with a brisk pace like a butler should and comes back, says, no, the light is not caustic. <laughs> I love that.
1: The whole thing was like, "Oh my god!" But it's you said I'm caustic. like that. You were like, "Oh, you totally say stuff like that." Do I say stuff like that? Am I so weird?
0: Well, not about caustic light, but just questions that I have no idea how to how to actually like measure the quality of what you want me to say back to you. <laughs> so I just have to say yes or no. I just have to pick.
1: <laughs> oh man, I didn't know that I said stuff like you say like caustic.
0: You give me something like say say we're making a cake. You okay. would say is is this consistency right or something? And I'd be like, yes, you know. (laughs) Nice. Like, I don't know. how There's a lump here and there. Is that acceptable? I don't know. Oh, my
1: God. You're so funny. But the whole time you were like, you say stuff like that. You say stuff like that. I was like, I say stuff like that. Well, I thought that the entire persona chat was super intriguing. And the idea that it would be one thing if Sophie had said, You need to create a character. And you need to create a character because of the things that you said. Like you can protect your private life. You can sort of turn it on and turn it off. You can be someone on stage and somebody else at home and sort of leave it behind. Like those things I I can relate to.
0: That's not what she said, though.
1: Not even a little, Paul. She was like, talk about caustic.
0: She's probably forgotten where she came from. Unless she inherited all this wealth. You know, because she seems to really look down on people, you know, and just feels her Sophie's character as a way to play down to their level and take advantage of these lesser beings that she shares the planet with. And she sees her wealth as the reward for having done it so well as proof that she's right.
1: I just feel like the way that she actually explained having a character to Midge was so like over the top and graphic. I mean, I know it was Amy Sherman Palladino- I mean, she could have just popped up on the stage and said this entire speech. But the whole concept that like men are not going to think you're funny. Men only want to fuck you. And you need to cover that hole. Holy mackerel. I mean, that is really, really crass. And I mean, I know that that is like she was trying to speak again. You know, I get it. I get it. And women do speak to one another like that. Like, like, look, dude, like the guys are going to think this blah, blah, blah. And like cover your hole. No, I've never seen something like that. I mean, that was just like so much. So much. And even the whole thing about her being like so astounded that that Midge would want to see her kitchen. She was like, the kitchen? Really? Why? And she's like, Well, I just always liked kitchens. The kitchen. Why? Like it was just over and over again. Like, I understood the concept that like she was so much more than this. You know, she was never the this like domestic you know caricature of a person. So like when she goes I haven't seen the kitchen in so long. I'm always Touring upstairs. Or upstairs. Right? <laughs> <laughs> upstairs. Like that was so <laughs> funny. I was like, oh my god. I don't know. She was such a an interesting person to sort of wrap your brain around, you know, everything you're right about, all the things about like the piano and the rug and all these interesting historical pieces that she surrounded herself with. But then at the same time, how she, Moish was like, she was kind of like a braggart about some of it. Like, I know she was just telling her where the piano came from, but it was like, don't touch it. You know, it's like if you really have the money and you really have the wealth, you're like, go ahead, you're like I don't care. We'll get, we'll, I'll get another piano. You know, that's equally awesome. You know, like you have a little bit more of like this feel. She's obviously like nouveau riche about this whole situation. You know, yeah. where she has to like tell you where she got the thing and then act like you need to treat it really differently than anything else
0: well the part where she just goes does yes ma'am and and she's like i love that or or whatever (laughs) that
1: is so yes good god that's not somebody who grew up with that kind of business no so what did you think about how midge took in this information about this idea of having a persona you can't be the real you again we're hitting hard on this theme of appearances versus reality she looked
0: like a person kind of like a a freshman at first day of college right just Wide-eyed and taking it all in, you know, just like how they say, "I'm drinking from a fire hose," right? That's like Whoa, that's okay. like a, a lot like of information, and she, and she didn't really. I mean, she obviously had strong feelings about it later, that she could kind of assemble into something. But right then, she was just like, "Oh, okay." She well, wasn't really, you know, Midge. Really, and it
1: was so extreme. Like you know, if we thought Midge was an extreme person. I feel like Sophie was like extreme, you know, 20 million times over.
0: Mrs. Lennon wasn't happy with your
1: coat. Uh, The whole thing, (laughs) sucking on the lemon. Oh, yeah. And drinking hot water and being astounded that Midge would even eat one bite of a cookie that she served her. Oh, my God. I've never heard of macaroon. I can't even say it now. You say macaroon, right?
0: I say macaroon, but she said macaroon.
1: Macaroon. Well, it's very French, right? I don't know. It just... Uh, I. She was like a whole different planet for me, you know? I just didn't even know any... I don't know anybody who'd be anything like this woman. I give so much credit to Amy and Dan for coming up with a character that was so unique, you know? I mean, when you think about stereotypes and you think about people who you've seen in movies before, have you really seen... A character like this who would be like, Kitchens, why? You know, there's just <laughs> that whole thing. Like every little part of her was so complete. And yet like, like no character I've ever seen.
0: You're right. I haven't seen one quite like her. Like the combination. We've probably seen like out of touch rich people or something like mm-hmm. that. But not really the...
1: Well, and like the pro woman, that part too, where you're like, you got to make sure, you know, men only want you for one thing. Like that's one version, but she doesn't ever look like this. And she doesn't have these other idiosyncrasies, you know?
0: Yeah, it's a good character. She's very unique. Great choice for for Jane Lynch.
1: She played it perfectly, perfectly. So what Paul was mentioning earlier about when it's finally time for Midge to take off and, you know, she gets her coat and it's, you know, it's perfectly nice. Actually, if you noticed, it's the coat that Moish gave Abe to give Rose. Remember when they were in the factory and she go, he goes, here, give this, give this to Rose for me.
0: I did not catch that little mm-hmm. detail.
1: And it is, it's that coat that she wore in. And Sophie's like, I don't like that coat. I don't like that. <laughs> Basically, it's like saying, I don't like that life. I don't like that look on you. And gives her this very lavish fur coat.
0: Apparently. I mean, Marshall Fields from Chicago. I mean, that's... You got
1: to wrap your brain around, though, the idea that Paul, like, they didn't have Amazon and stuff. So, yeah, you would have had to go to Chicago, to Marshall Fields, and get this coat. So, when were you in Chicago, Midge? How would you have... You don't travel outside this area. How have you gotten this? I honestly think that Rose's concern was that it was a man and some sort of, like, hoochie sugar daddy kind of thing. You think? Yes, I do. I thought it
0: was... I thought she was just more upset about knowing nothing about anything going on.
1: But I think that it, I think that something like a full length fur coat, if essentially it kind of comes off like Midge is like a teenager. I know she's not, but they basically look at her like that. If she basically came, our teenage girl came in with a fur length fur coat, we would have a million questions on how she could get such a thing and who would give her such a thing.
0: Lavish gifts often do not come without strings.
1: And they are typically from men. They are not typically from another woman. So that would raise a lot of flags. So all this flag raising goes on at Temple.
0: The worst place that it could go on, because that's very on display. It, it illustrates that Abe and Rose are not clicking right now. Rose is kind of falling apart right now. Oh
1: my gosh. She had gone to go see her fortune teller. Drina and you know get reassurance and actually quite the opposite happens she not only doesn't get reassurance but she actually gets like embarrassed by this new fortune teller who's like yeah Drina she totally lived like down the street and she's like no she was from Eastern European country in Bucharest and all this stuff like I mean, like, again, it was appearances versus reality. And Rose was smacked in the face that, like, you've been bamboozled this entire time. Drina was not anything but, like, a regular old hour hourly worker here. She could be replaced at any time. And she wasn't this, you know, shaman or whatever. She was just...
0: Her response I was a lot, lot like Abe when uh, Joel came to his office. He's like, I'm going to be something great. And Abe's like, okay. <laughs> and then and, and when Rose was like, no, no, she, she's from an Eastern European country. And, and then she's like, well, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. You know, Rose came into the temple so pissed and so upset. And an interesting twist of appearances versus reality. I loved how they had the guy sitting next to Abe. And rather than that guy be drawn into the family drama he was focused in on the rabbi and so he like he's like he's like where are your, where are your women you know where's where's everybody and he's like i don't know and he's like come here i have something to tell you and you really thought he was going to talk about something really important he's like the rabbi has a cold and he was like, okay, like, thanks to the info. And then they have this huge screaming fight right next to him. And in, in the actual pew there, you know, up front, the rabbi sneezes. And the man, like, leans over and he's like, see, I told you. <laughs> like, he is, but it's the, it's the, it's your whole, like, point of view, right? Yeah. To that man in the pew, the rabbi's cold is what is going on right now. Like, that is reality. Even though, like, no, dude, these people are having, like, a huge argument right next to you. And he didn't, it didn't faze him at all. So, like, fascinating, right? On, like, that twist of, like, what your reality is isn't someone else's reality.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way using that particular example. But, yeah, I see what you're talking about.
1: Well, so following this huge argument with Rose, Midge has got to head straight out to her show for Harry Drake. And this is, like, the big special showcase that she's gonna do in order to actually be able to work with sophie
0: at this point are you starting to wonder why she she needs to keep lying to her parents because some things might even out for her if she was honest with with them about this stuff
1: i am surprised that she has managed to make it go on for so long because she is out like every single night. Like, where do they think she? Is? Like, what? What is going on? You know, mm-hmm. I'm surprised that Rose and Abe haven't. I don't know. Like, I it would be weird for them to follow her, but why they haven't figured it out in some other way? You know, like they're smart and they're nosy, and they're curious. Like how he showed up at B Altman. Mm-hmm. It seems like oh god, well, he knew it to just,
0: look there. He doesn't know where she's going.
1: No, I know. But it just seems like the kind of thing you might hire Zelda to go follow her. Or you might hire, you know, I don't know, somebody. You know what I'm saying? Like there just might be some some way that you would collect yeah, that but, info. But it still, seems weird I mean, for them to sit on it for so long.
0: Rose doesn't take action herself. We've seen she acts through others, right? Yeah. So
1: uh, Even within like the community, all the moms talking and stuff, you'd think that there'd be... Something, you know, little nuggets. I heard, I heard, I saw somebody in the elevator at midnight, kind of, you know, just some talking, some amount of talking. They're just, I don't know, it's hard It's hard to believe she managed to keep a lid on it, you know, even with Susie calling and stuff.
0: I think it would just be easier to to say what's up. I mean, what are they going to do?
1: I don't know. And because we haven't had that moment yet, I don't, what are they going to do? They don't know yet. They don't know, even, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched episode eight, they don't know up till... Through eight, So season two, obviously, we're going to have to broach this subject, you know? Yeah, for sure. What in the world do you think about old Midge's basically meltdown?
0: She has, through the whole history of the show, wanted most of all to talk about what is happening right now. That is when she is her funniest, she feels anyway. This Sophie Lennon stuff was so overwhelming at the time. That she couldn't react to it like I was trying to describe earlier. The way that she she might if she was talking to Imogene or somebody like that. She's had enough time to process it, and she thinks it's all bullshit. And she thinks everybody should know about it. You know, there's a point there when she takes a a longer beat than necessary to wait for a laugh, and it's like her brain just clicks over, loses track of the fact that she's gonna torpedo her life. (laughs) Can I tell you what I
1: what I think? Part of it was this is how my brain would work, at least. Okay, so she felt uh, some mix of like embarrassment and like sort of cut down by Sophie, especially, you know, between her being like, Kitch- the kitchen? Why? And you ate a cookie? Oh, and oh, and like your coat's not good enough and stuff. So think about how Sophie's behavior with her, specifically the coat, ended up affecting the rest of Midge's life. So Midge comes into Temple, had, had she been wearing her regular coat? Then her own persona that she had with her parents of like, I'm just a mom going to work with my kids would have maintained. But because she came in with this coat, because Sophie forced her to put on airs, put on this fur coat head to toe that she really wasn't that person, made her into somebody she wasn't. She then had to answer to her mom and and her father essentially in Temple and created this whole screaming fit. And I felt like it was like right then and there, Sophie's advice that you should be someone who you're not, it already had had consequences for her, bad consequences. That that I think that by the time she got to the gaslight, she was like pissed that like, you know, however incredulous we are that she had managed to continue this life without telling Abe and Rose, she had until Sophie forcing her to wear this coat out You know, tipped her hand to them that something more was going on. And so now her own house of cards was falling apart because Sophie was forcing her to be fake, you know? Mm. And so here she was. Now she was going to have an extreme backlash on stage to Sophie. Like, why did you tell me that I had to be fake? Because she even said, I'm going to lay off my mom tonight. I'm not going to make fun of things with my mom because... Like, I kind of feel like shit because I just went and put on airs with my mom and acted like I was somebody else. And, and she had to make up this whole story in her own head of who she was. You know, do you see what I'm saying? Like, Sophie set her up for that temple situation.
0: Oh, so you think it's more of a reaction, like the emotional blowback, I guess, that, that usually fuels her best work is fed by just the turmoil that Sophie brought into her life.
1: Yeah, by by basically, um, you know, first advising her to be fake and sitting there and filling her head with all these ideas that like you yourself can't stand up there and do this. You have to be somebody else. And then, like I said, actually forcing her to put on a costume to head to temple in this fur coat, it created the drama that now she has to go deal with you know? Mm -hmm. And so she didn't want any of this drama. And so I feel like that was when she stood on stage and she was like, screw her, like screw her for telling me to be fake and dressing me up to be fake and making me now have this like crappy situation with my mom and dad. And, you know, and my life is, it was fine. Like I was doing it up here being me, you know, and like screw her for telling me like, do you guys all know that that's not her when she's standing up here? And I was shocked when she squealed. To that level, you know? Yeah. But it makes sense to me when I thought about the fur coat being the linchpin in her own. If you think about what happens in episode eight and how angry Abe is at her and how angry Rose is at her, like that fur coat was the linchpin moment, you know, of her personal life going to hell and now her professional life.
0: Well, I guess it's probably the first time some artifact from her professional life fell into her personal life.
1: Yes. With the exception of those phone calls from Susie, which Rose is definitely questioning, it was finally a moment where she had to explain where this came from and explain what this life was about, you know? So I don't know. I on, in one hand, I I mean, I probably would not have been in that position of like ever torpedoing her. I think I would have stood up there and done my tight ten. I think I would have yeah. done it. I don't. I don't think I would have let my emotions get the better of me. But that's one of the things that's interesting about Midge. She is still young, naive, you know, inexperienced. And you're right; she is her most funny self. When she just speaks off the cuff based on what happened just then, you know, an hour before, I mean, hell, she ran down there in her pajamas, you know, on her first night in that nightgown, you know? So, I mean, that is what she's about. But I mean, could you imagine, would you ever consider wrecking someone else's professional career like that, especially on showcase night?
0: She doesn't need to have been alive very long to know that publicly outing uh, an icon you know and and saying stuff that nobody else knows is gonna is gonna blow back on you these days, people will like I mean, that's the kind of headlines that get the biggest press. But there was a time in this country when if you reach this kind of icon status, people just didn't want to hear you know bad shit about you. They didn't want to hear bad shit about the president. They didn't want to hear you know, right. certain things about certain people. Elvis you know? is a
1: saint. Everybody can that kind of do of thing. And Marilyn this was Monroe. that day and
0: age when muckraking wasn't looked upon with, it, nothing went viral like that. You know what I mean? Right. And
1: I mean, and Sophie explained that she paid off everybody, you know, in the media to never tell her secrets. But at the same time, you're right. Like the average person would not look kindly on you talking smack about somebody. They'd be like, that's you know, why would you be so rude and crude?
0: Like, uh, what is it, Hank Hill? If you, if when you talk about John Wayne in front of Hank Hill, uh, you better be saying the right thing about John Wayne. <laughs> you know, something like that as a more modern yeah, <laughs> kind of uh, example.
1: So, you yourself, do you think that you would, would you, would you break and 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 say this stuff about Sophie just to?
0: I don't know. I think I think you might bitch about that to Susie later, but. You stick with your tight ten because that's what you've been working on. That you know it works. This is what you'd be delivering for your show. This is what Mr. Drake came to see. So that's the show that night.
1: Yeah, I think that it does. It does speak to the idea of you know the gigantic impact moms and daughters and that relationship. You know the you're never at your you you've seen me at my very very worst, and I would say I am my very very most ugly self if i'm arguing with my mom like by far like that's when things are going to get ugly fast because there's just such a history you know yeah and it's like if there is going to be an argument it's going to go from like zero to 60 because we don't argue and stuff like that now but it's like there, the, all that teenage crap and all those you know other years come up like so quick so i think that like there was so much fuel on the fire arguing with rose that it was just like bah, you know yeah. Harry Drake storming out of the gaslight and screaming at Susie how she's gonna be dead in this town and they're gonna and they're going to be blackballed. I do not think I could even absorb. I mean, I felt awful about the Sophie Lennon stuff. And obviously Harry is her her agent, but like I could not wrap my brain around the damage that she had done until Harry said that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think I think I had seen this actor in other roles where he played less assertive kind of guys, you know? And so I was expecting once Susie started to plead that this familiar face would be like, uh, listen to her, you know? But no, no, I mean, he was offended. He had a client to protect and... You know, there was nothing Susie could say right then.
1: Well, and it would seem so messed up because if you think about it, like if he had heard about this third hand, he still would be irate. But the idea of being invited to sit at like a table center to watch someone rip apart your prized talent is like, this is a sick joke. You know, like you invited me here and she and he kept saying this is her act. Like this is this is her planned act like what? You invited me to this? I mean, it's it's like, are you mental, you know?
0: Susie's like, she's a little off book tonight.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and he was like, I told you. She goes, I told you she was spontaneous. Oh, my God. Uh, so it, this ends with like a heartbreak, you know, really a heartbreak to see Susie's face and realize like, you like hitched your wagon to a very unstable star when it came to Midge. Yeah. Like you love her spontaneity, but it's like a beautiful candle or something. It's like, no, get too close. you burn your face off, you know, like, oh, no, it's like she was just drawn in by her. And then at the same time, just like burned so hard by her.
0: I liked this episode quite a bit because so much happened and there were Abe was in it. He's my favorite character. So and he had plenty of great lines especially with the blumenthal thing and uh the introduction i mean he was a guy who who had wanted his life to stay exactly how it was he was happy with his life you know and then he gets to this point in this episode and he he has to make a change and he's the one that says ladies it's time for a divorce you know yeah no one wants to hear it right then But Abe came up with this idea all on his own, (laughs) you know, which isn't really like a father thing to do, but it's like...
1: I think it's the father thing to do when he recognizes the level of chaos that's going on around him. Like it's one thing to be like if he could shut I- himself in the study and just read or grade papers and not hear anything and not be absorbed into anything, it's fine. But like when Ethan's watching the TV and he wants to be watching something or, or you know, Dodie and, and Midge are sitting outside talking about all the insanity that is, you know, basically the Wiseman's family's business that's being strewn around town. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that there is a time when fathers do put their foot down and say, "Enough is enough. This chaos will end now." It is the I will turn this car around. That's right. You know, that's
0: a good thing. That's a good way to look at it because dads are the house. It's it's not that we're the peacekeeper or something like that, but kind of. I mean, we are the we are the ones that that. Cherish the peace
1: You cherish the peace I think that's exactly The right You are You are Not the peacekeeper Maybe the keeper of the peace Maybe that (laughs) Maybe maybe that's the right way To say it Because yeah I agree with you That it's like You know Moms can put up With a whole bunch of crap Kids running around the house The dog's barking Your dinner's going The TV's on Dad walks in And it's like Quiet
0: Right,
1: <laughs> right. Like this chaos right. must end now. Now, and I also will say that I think, especially of this time, but e- but even in general now, that reputation and family name. And that kind of stuff is very important, very important. Not I mean, obviously, women feel very protective of that, too. But I would say stereotypically, you could say that a man, you know, like a man's word, a man's reputation, that kind of stuff is like so important. And I think that he just got got to a point when it's like, you know, you're either married or you're divorced and either is fine. But this in-between garbage where like we don't even know where anyone stands, I'm not putting up with that. It's like math, you know, it's one or the other there's no in between.
0: The whole the conversation he had with Mr. Blumenthal on the couch when he can hear the women in the other oh my room God. talking about him being a pimp and whatever. <laughs> And, and the guy's like, "Yeah, I used to have this car, but man, the upkeep." And Abe's like, "Well, yeah, the the upkeep will get you every time, or something like that." And it's, it's I think it's kind of metaphorical, to, right? He's to talking marriage about marriage and that kind of right, stuff, and family. And then, he, then when he comes back and gets him, the line is, "Wednesdays are soft foods nights at the Wiseman's." <laughs> <He's> <laughs> so,
1: like, he's oh. just trying so hard to control the chaos. So hard. Like, so he reframed it. So instead of saying like, this is an insane food spread, he's like, this is soft foods night. Like this is something we do here. You know, like he tried to reframe the chaos and try to make it make sense. That's totally Abe all the way. I thought this episode was awesome. I loved every portion of it from the birthday party prep. I thought that the 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 unique character of Sophie Lennon and all that she brings to the commentary of like women's place in the world. And I think, I mean, obviously that whole part when she was saying kitchen why she was clearly trying to say like I think it was a play on that a woman's place is in the kitchen you know and I think it was like her her really wanting to delve and say why do you think that that's the place you want to see why? Like it was so much more than, than just, you know, I don't cook for myself. I have a chef. It's like, why do you, why do you midge as just in your DNA? Why do you think you want to see the kitchen? You know, what is that? There was a lot of good questions being asked. And I think it does bring up this idea of like, who do you put forward? is it easier to put forward like a version of yourself does everybody do this all the time and maybe people take it to different extremes and here was midge for better or for worse sort of like bucking the system and saying i'm i'm going to be me even when i shot myself and my friend and my agent and the gaslight and everything in the foot here i'm still like i'm not going to put forth a different version At least in this area, because obviously she does put on a different version for Emma Jean and for her parents and for her kids and, you know, even for Joel, you know, all this stuff means she lives that life. But, like, in this venue, she, like, refuses to be anything but just, like, raw.
0: And that's this week's episode. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration, among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please
1: visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at PodClubhouse.
0: Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.